Hey everyone, this is Season 3, Episode 2 of Guards of Eden. Today's guest is Ebony Allard. Ebony's an award-winning coach that looks to work with her clients through helping them find clarity, whilst also helping them establish a higher level of self-confidence. I was actually introduced to Ebony through her podcast, which is called Adulting with Ebony, and you can find that in the show notes. I actually wanted to be a guest on Ebony's podcast because when I first saw the podcast, I was taken aback by not only the quantity of content that she had provided, but also the variety of topics and guests that she'd already had on. And not only was Ebony open about sharing her platform with me, she actually asked if she could be on Guards of Eden, which I found extremely surprising just because of the platform that she's built and the amazing things that she's doing. So of course I happily obliged and it led to this amazing conversation that you're about to listen to and once again the word that comes to mind is vulnerability with Ebony. She not only has shared her journey through her book which is Misfit to Maven, also you can find that in the show notes, but she's also just so open and empathetic with her story and what themes run through it and how other people may experience them and I just it almost felt like an hour body experience sharing the conversation with her and I'm so so grateful for it and before we do get into the episode it would mean a whole bunch to me if you're listening to this on Apple to leave a rating and a review as well as to just share the story because of course I'm trying to grow the podcast and I'm I'm so proud of the people that jump on this podcast that it would mean a whole bunch to share the stories that you hear as well as just show Ebony love in whatever way that takes form because I truly believe in the work that she's doing. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal human being and I really can't wait for you to hear her story. So without further ado, three, two, one, let's go. Hey Ebony, how are you doing? I'm really good. Yeah? I am. This is so much fun. Thank yeah. you for coming and seeing me and for having this conversation. Yeah, I'm really glad I got to meet you alongside of it. I always prefer face-to-face, but um, yeah, and it got to take me to, Bri- well, near Bristol, which I'm a big <laughs> fan of. I always love away days, so that's great. <laughs> so, first question. Can you give me a song that reminds you of a happy memory or makes you feel good? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I already know and I'm excited. <laughs> um, I thought about this for such a long time and I wanted mm. to get the best right song and I went through so many mm. and uh, I was listening to one of your other guests be like, I want to give you so many. And so I really yeah. nailed it down to one. Oh, and what is it? It's Desiree, You Gotta Be. Great song. It is. You can't listen to it without feeling good. Yeah, 100%. That is going to live on the Guards of Eden soundtrack, which is on Spotify. And that will be in the show notes for people that want to listen to it. That lives there now. Yay. <laughs> right. Firstly, you were born in France. I was. Really? And I found that super interesting because I I knew somewhat that you'd kind of been mobile like as a, as a kid. But um, yeah, when I started reading the book and I was like, oh, my God, born in France. Super interesting. And a quote that I really enjoyed in your book, and I'm going to keep looking at the computer because I've dug a load of quotes out that i really enjoyed and that's i can't gift your book now because i've like written like pen (laughs) all over it but um for the first six weeks of my life i was pretty much alone in a little glass box a place i've returned to many times metaphorically i found that really interesting in what sense would you say you've returned to that place and looking back like do you feel like there's anything 
from having that kind of experience as a baby that's ended up maybe guiding your life in a certain way yeah yeah. I it's my safe place so a lot of people's safe place is like in a hug or in an embrace mine is not I mean it is but it's not so the it's not the first place I'll go like I won't run to somebody if I'm feeling stressed or sad or vulnerable and ask for a hug mm. I actually prefer to be on my own with other people near like so I mm. like knowing that there's people in the house or um when I was a teenager and struggling with stuff I would get the I lived in Brighton and I'd get the train to Portobello Road and sit and drink coffee on a table by myself watching people go round and mm. it's it's that feeling and I, I'm sure most people can relate to it of like being alone but in company mm. and that's definitely my safe place and that's what I meant by that I think yeah yeah yeah, yeah I find that really interesting and it also brings up a question I'm going to ask you in a bit which I'm excited about um how would you describe young Ebony and that child you had such like a nomad upbringing I guess it's really fascinating to me because my siblings didn't and you know it it shifted about three we came back to London and we were much more um static at that point but before three like you say I lived in a house truck and we lived in Ireland we lived all over the place and I was so innocent and so carefree and I loved other people and I was so curious and I would go off on my own and like chat to anyone and was really like playful I think and inquisitive yeah Mm. and do you think that's ended up impacting kind of your perspective the perspective of the world now having that mobile upbringing absolutely yeah yeah I don't I don't know whether it's by design or coincidence but I'm so all of my siblings and all of my family love to travel. We love mm. different cultures and we love the world. But I can't stay in one place for that long. Really? <laughs> like, I need to be moving. And whether it's, and this is going to go slightly woo-woo, but whether it's the my uh, rising sign, I've got so much Sagittarius in my astrological, yeah, yeah, yeah. astrological chart. And so I do really love to travel and to, to um, see new places and to push horizons. And I get lots of energy from it. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, in my 20s, I definitely felt like I actually physically recharged on an aeroplane. Like as I was moving to another place, I could feel myself growing and upgrading. And is that how you're feeling about the recent move that's coming shortly? Yeah. yeah so we're, we're, we're recording this just before my move to Spain. Which right? is very wild. <laughs> you're going to be in Spain when this comes out. I am. Yeah. Yeah. And so I am feeling that way. I'm feeling like a really interesting mix of I've been in this place mm. where I am right now, just outside Bristol, for three and a half years And I've lived in this house for three years. And that's the longest I've lived anywhere. That's so interesting. Mm. So So what's interesting about it for me is that I've just made like a community and like solid friendships and laid down some roots. And so this move has been really hard because Mm. it's a, the only way I can describe it is a soul calling. Like it's a, it's, I'm, guided to move and to leave and it and it feels like a act of selfless service it feels like it's something bigger than me and that may not mean anything to people but the, if I was if I was somebody who enjoyed staying comfortable yeah. I would stay here yeah, yeah yeah 
It's so powerful, though, to have that level of intuition, though. Yeah, it's still terrifying. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, once again, another quote that, I, that really stuck with me from your book yeah. was you were talking about the ages of like four and six. Mm-hmm. And you said from four to six, I felt pretty normal. I'm not sure that I knew not what normal was, but I knew when I stopped feeling it. How was that time in your life? And how was that particular transition out of normality at that such a young age? <laughs> Do you know, one of the hardest things about writing the book was that I relived everything. Mm. And I actually have a terrible memory. And I, I've I learned this recently. I've been learning about different personality types. And um, for the those of you that like Jungian analytical archetypes yeah. stuff, mm. I'm an ENFJ, apparently. But I'm an ENFJ who's been living in their shadow as an INFP for most of my life. Which Complex. I think is, I think that might be mine. INFP? Yeah, I think so. That makes sense to yeah. me. Yeah. And so I think what kind of happened around that age was that I had this ENFJ... Um, and I grew up in a house full of introverts mm. and it wasn't celebrated or encouraged for me to be the expressive, uh, exuberant mm. person that I was. So I've got this really interesting mix. Yeah. And I think that's what I meant by not being normal was that I started to realize that the way that my family lived and the things that I was seeing or relating to or the conversations that we were having or just what was going on mm. wasn't the same as my friends, wasn't the same mm. as what I saw when I went to other people's houses. And I was a little kid who loved, loved sleepovers, right? Like yeah. I was the kid that was like, can I stay at your house tonight? <laughs> <laughs> they were like, um, I don't know, I'll ask my mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so happy to stay at other people's houses. And because mm. it was like going on, to another culture to yeah, me right yeah. like it it was if you think about the traveling that i was used to doing i loved like for me because i'm sure we'll touch on it but we i had such a solid healthy uh, foundation in terms of food mm. like tv dinners were absolute novelty to me like going right. to someone's house and having fish and chips or potato waffles was like heaven to yeah, me yeah. i was so happy that i was going to get junk food out of people's houses <laughs> <laughs> yeah you um you were raised in these like very like I don't even know the correct term to kind of as an adjective, but you were raised in these specialist schools. Can you mm-hmm. explain that a little bit more? Like what that was and I guess the principles that you lived by at such a young age that Yeah. I'm assuming were so healthy at the time. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, right. isn't it? Yeah. So I went to a Steiner school. Okay. Um and Rudolf Steiner was uh a guy who developed a way of teaching that was child-led. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nearest... So if you don't know of a Steiner school or Rudolf Steiner, you might have heard of Montessori. Mm-hmm. Um, and Montessori schools are also uh, an alternative education system, which is much more child-led and much less about uh, getting people to memorize or repeat mm. you know, information. It's yeah. actually about the experience and learning in an experiential way and being much more led around what the child's gifts are and what they're interested in and so you don't learn to read until you want to learn to read and you know, right. that kind of stuff yeah and what's so cool is that i look at that now and i'm like that's absolutely how i'd raise my children mm. like i of course like what the education system is fucked and yeah. that was such a brilliant thing that my kids my, my parents gifted me and us as kids 
that's not how I felt about it at the time, right? Like really? I just thought it was weird and it was annoying. And why couldn't I just go to a regular school with regular people? Like I just wanted to be normal. And it was, I think, all of those things of like, you know, we, we traveled, we didn't have a TV at home, mm. that we didn't eat sugar. Like, yeah, meh. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that was actually something, sentiment on the grander scheme of things that I really took away from your book was that, you really romanticized, I guess, norm- normality, which is such a strange thing to think about if you just, if it's just your normality, it's just your reality to have this, I guess, you know, quotation marks, normal upbringing. But how, and then one, we'll get into it, like kind of as the book developed, it kind of, the more that you interacted with normality as you grew older, the more it kind of took you on this emotional journey yeah and like look at my life now it's yeah. so not normal yeah 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 <laughs> and I'm so not interested in normal anymore yeah. and I actually feel really uh sad for people who had a normal childhood but and that's so fascinating to me because I was obsessed I was like I just wanted to live in neighbors or EastEnders or right. like I just wanted to blend in and not be different and not be seen yeah it's so interesting it it really is the the whole i guess it's the the realization of like life's not always it's not always greener on the other side i guess yeah and what's fascinating to me like that book like so again have no memory the only reason i was able to write that book is that i'd kept 17 years worth of journals which is surreal and so i read every single diary entry and felt every single emotion that and i put on loads of weight while i wrote that book because i was feeling it all again and living it all again in order to be able to get those words out i know that when you interviewed michael he said something really similar it's so hard to give someone an emotional experience when you're writing without reliving an emotional experience for yourself and so i went through really feeling all of that again and it's so alien to my life now because i I just don't feel that way so it's hard to remember what it felt like to be there Mm. but i do yeah it's it's like a different me like something happened when i wrote that book and that version of me doesn't exist inside me anymore. Yeah, I find that with blog writing. That I, every time I've wrote a blog, it, it's like the final nail in a coffin on that situation. Yeah, and it's like I've put her to rest, or yeah. I've. It's because it's not an it's not a negative thing, and I, mm. I'm also not saying that I. I'm glad to be gone of that version of me. Mm. Like I have, I hope that you also got a sense of respect for what had been, and mm-hmm. you know, it was a very very personal very difficult book to write mm. and not everyone appreciated me writing it and so right yeah i have a, i have a really interesting and weird relationship with trying to remember exactly what i wrote and how i felt and all of that again now and yeah i think the main thing to really take away about that my childhood was that in the 80s no one had weird names right like I was called Ebony and it wasn't a fake name and like that's where it started and so then you know weird school weird family weird like all of those things and it's just so funny because so much of that stuff has come full circle Mm. and now is celebrated like you know recycling everything and eating organic just wasn't a thing then and now everyone is doing it and it's completely normal and so I have a really different relationship with my parents where I look at them a different perspective they were young where they were so ahead of their time and so amazing Mm. yeah like me I've got Luca was like not a name in the early 90s that people were naming their kids and yeah constantly spelt wrong constantly called luke my last name is always butchered um 
and yeah, it's a Spanish last name, first name's Italian, and then I'm obviously English, but my dad's side of the family is Spanish. So yeah, I've I relate to that in a very big way in mm. terms of craving some sort of normality and just realizing that that's all fucking bullshit in the end of the day it is and also like you've read the story right yeah. it's a really unique life like no one else would have lived my life no and yet once it was published the amount of people that sent me emails being like oh my god it's like you were describing I mean, like you did different things but it's yeah. like you're describing what was going on inside of me and that was just amazing for me to realize that I'd connected with people and that there were other misfits and there were other people out in the world who had this feeling of not belonging yeah and for those listening the book's called Misfit to Maven we'll talk about it in more depth but just if people are wondering what the name is they can go check it out um do you still see Brighton as a bit of a spiritual home oh that's such an interesting question for me now um it will always be incredibly important to me Mm. and up until three years ago I would have said yes 100% Mm. and now I my spiritual home is wherever I am yeah and that feels kind of big to have made that shift actually yeah I can imagine how do you remember your growing up period in the south coast it's an amazing place that Brighton is like, you know, everyone knows it now, so it's full. <laughs> um, <laughs> but growing up in Brighton was fascinating. It was a real mix of very interesting people, a lot of creatives mm. um, and a lot of seekers or people that I would call seekers now. Right. Like whether they were spiritually seeking or whether they were um, seeking connection mm. Um I spent my teens underneath when the West Pier was still yeah. much more there than it is now. It wasn't active, but it it had a had a roof um, on the beach end. And I would uh, go and hang out with the guys that lived underneath the pier. And there was a lot of drug use and a lot of, of, of um, cannabis and a lot of co- uh, heroin. And that... F- I. It wasn't that I wanted to be around the drug use and it wasn't that I wanted to be around um, the pain of that, but I didn't see the pain of that. I mm-hmm. saw the connection of that and I saw the communities, I think. And I, Brighton was full of pockets and of subse- subsections of people and it was really interesting. You know, you had all of these different kinds of people living together and there was always someone on the street shouting or wearing something weird and there was always someone with they're just weirder than you and so for me as someone who felt like a weirdo being able to live in a town where I was surrounded by other weirdos was was really cool and really important Mm. and it became and the other thing about Brighton I think as a teenager is it's a really good size to be a teenager it's like it's big enough that um there's some culture and there's some places to go and you can kind of, you know, lose people or, but it's small enough that it's, you can always find your way home and it doesn't take, you know, and it's like a 45 minutes to get home from anywhere. Yeah, half an yeah. hour kind of thing. So interesting. Once again, another reference to the book, <laughs> but you mentioned that growing up, I've never felt like I fit in anywhere properly. I wanted to, but I felt differently. How was it to go through that range of emotions at such a young age? 
I don't know that I can compare it to anything else, no. right? And and also now I'm like, does anyone feel normal in their teens? <laughs> like, I don't know, right? Yeah. Mm, but what I did, I think where that came from is that at school, so after starting school, I went to a, a state school, went to yeah. Dorothy Stringer, for those of you who know Brighton. <laughs> um, and I didn't fit in with any subset, like didn't fit into any clique and that's what high school is, right? Like, it's just a series. I mean, it's nowhere near as the what what is portrayed on American television, right? No. Like, I kind of thought that's what I was stepping into when I <laughs> stepped out of um, of of the Steiner School and this, like, alternative education system. I kind of believed I was stepping into a, an American high school situation, and, and that's not what it was. But no. I, I had... It wasn't that I had no friends, but mm. I just didn't have the ability to create the kind of friendship glue that I saw other people creating. Mm. Yeah. A lot of the questions I'm asking, I think I'm only realizing it now, but a lot of the questions are because I kind of empathize or at least connect with or resonate with me in particular. Mm. Um, And that's just, that's very unintentional, but it's just ended up being the way the questions have come along. But yeah, I really, it really resonated with me with that part of the part of the book kind of talking about, yeah, not feeling like you fit in with anyone. I, I wasn't unpopular by any means, but I never really felt like... I felt like I had a couple of friends in different friendship groups that were good friends of mine, but I didn't have... It weren't like, oh, we just... This group of friends, that's been my friends for several yeah, years. Yeah, and, and then I kind of made that a thing, right? So mm. then I was like, oh, because we're trying to find our identity at that point. And I know this yeah. now because, you know, I'm... Uh, have studied like all of the things but then I had no really idea that I was making that mean something about me and and latching onto it as a as an identity point so if Mm. you can't belong in this group or you don't belong in that group or you're not sporty or a skater or you're like I was hung out with a lot of the skaters but I wasn't a skater I tried and hurt myself (laughs) and I don't like hurting myself right (laughs) (laughs) and I also you know really felt for the kind of nerds and the kids that would sit on you know under m block on their own with a book in in the break time and like so i could see all of the misfits and Mm. i wanted to help them all it's so funny isn't it yeah right we join the little dots backwards on our life if we could see where we were going the other way around but i could see them and my it it made my heart hurt and i wanted to help all of them and i wanted to have enough influence to be able to do something about it and Mm. i didn't i just didn't so and I didn't feel like I, be- yeah, belonged anywhere or, or that I was good enough for anyone to have in their social group. So similarly to you, it wasn't like I was actively picked on or yeah. I was actively un- unpopular because I wasn't. Mm. I knew how to be a chameleon enough to fit in. I just didn't really belong anywhere. Yeah. And no one got to see the real me. 100% in terms of that. Well, both sides of that in terms of agreeing with what you're saying and it being the same in my case mm. so interesting i fucking hated high school but that's a story for another day were you someone that was always quite creative and interested in arts yes yeah yeah it's my happy place like drawing and recently i brought it back into my world in a really oh. big way and i uh, started painting again last year and drawing bought myself an ipad pro just to play and like really before that i was doing a lot of watercolor again and really playing with it mm-hmm. and then everyone would go oh you're great you should sell them and it fucking killed it for me because it's not about it i mean it didn't and i you know if you've ever said that to me i haven't taken offense i just it became really clear to me that it's an an expression like i i need it just to process and to play and it's not 
something that I want to monetize or sell or, mm. or, or that I even see value in in that way, right? Mm. Like it would be weird for me to go into someone else's house and see my art on the wall. And I'm not against it. It's just, it's very, it's not what art is for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find that so interesting. And I do want to actually, yeah, let's talk about this now. Um, <laughs> a little bit all over the place, but you talked about, because one thing that people notice, I guess, if they meet you is your tattoos. Um, it's kind of hard not to these days. Yeah, right. Um, but something that you mentioned when you were talking about how much you enjoyed being in tattoo shops when you were growing up, mm. um, you mentioned all these things and then there was just a very short sentence that may not have resonated with someone, but it resonated with me and it was the permanence of the work. <laughs> that sentence just, I found that very interesting can you speak to that and in terms of tattoos and the idea of permanence of work meaning something to you in that situation? The tattoo world is, oh, it's so interesting. One of the things people tell me the most when they see my tattoos, they're like, oh, I've always wanted one, but I could never commit to anything. <laughs> and they look at me and they look at my life and they're like but you you don't live in one place you've had multiple careers like how does somebody who has serious commitment issues have so many tattoos <laughs> and it's a valid question yeah right? yeah <laughs> and i can't really explain it but there's something about the permanence or the marking of mm. the relationship that you had with an artist that came from a feeling or a thought. So every piece of, and I can't speak for everybody's tattoo experience, and also my tattoo journey has really changed from the beginning where it was very much a like, let's show everyone how hard and tough I am, right? Right. like I don't feel pain, look, Mm. um, to a much softer, much more feminine, much more gentle thing. But definitely at the beginning, it was, yeah, around also around having something that was mine, mm. that it was only mine, that no one else had it, and that yeah. I, and that I was doing something with and to my body that was within my control, and that was beautiful, mm. because I really struggled with the body I was given. Right. Yeah. Um, does that answer your question? I don't it, know. If it it, does. No, it does. It does. Um, it's just the next question I was thinking was. You've spoken about your relationship with food and how it changed. Mm. How challenging was the changes that ended up happening over that? I kind of want to, I want to make this question as open and as vague as possible because I want you to <laughs> delve into it however you feel comfortable. But, no, but um, ask me, like, it helps, to, like, what, which bit of the food stuff is important to you or was um, interesting to you, I suppose? I guess the change being, like you said, you really enjoyed, ended up getting into junk food and mm. then... It, I guess it spiraled and it's something once again I've had trouble with mm. with food um, and it ended up leading to eating disorders mm. and I wanted to kind of speak to I wanted you to kind of speak to firstly how challenging the the spiral can be yeah in terms of I think people maybe the perception is is that it's immediate and it's like that mm. but it's not I'm assuming Again, I can't speak for everyone's experience. Um, And I think that food and eating disorders are mostly not about food. 100%, yeah. And the key memory that really stays with me is um, 
I won't use her name actually, but a girl from school mm-hmm. who when in between years either eight and nine or nine and ten, so it's around year nine, mm-hmm. um, came back after the summer and she was tiny, like properly had a bobble head. Yeah. And most people and that's probably a really horrible thing to say, and I really don't mean it like that. But like most people would have looked at her and seen a sick woman or a yeah. sick girl, mm-hmm. and I looked at her and I was jealous, and I wanted that, and I want, and I, I could see the discipline that it took to get there, and I could see the um, strength that she'd had, and I admired it. <laughs> and I wanted that. I also saw the way people looked at her, and I and 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 I don't know when that changed, right? Like I don't mm. know when it, I went from I don't want anyone to notice me ever mm. to I I want a bit of the way people are looking at her, but I also don't. And so mostly for me, my anorexia journey was it's really interesting looking at it looking back at it now because it's not logical it's not rational it didn't really make sense the things that I wanted shifted so frequently right like I wanted to be really skinny so that everyone noticed me but I also just wanted to blend in just wanted to fit in and have no one notice me Mm. and I think again it started off around like how will boys see me at like 14 and can I make them all want me but not want me so much that it's dangerous right okay and also, like, the only thing that I had control over in my life, my parents were divorcing, it was GCSE year, mm-hmm. like, everything was getting a bit crazy. I didn't like who I was or who I was perceived as, as and how I was showing up in the world. And this gave me a way to control something and to, and mm-hmm. to manipulate it. And I kind of came across it by accident, right? Like, this yeah. girl really encouraged me, but also I hadn't really thought about, like, properly... There'd been an article that my dad had shown me and had been like, please don't be anorexic. Mm-hmm. So there's somewhere I knew what it was that now and it was yeah. planted in my head. And I remember as a kind of experiment being like, well, what happened? Like, will anyone notice if I don't eat? Mm-hmm. And what will happen if I don't eat? Um, and I lost a stone in a week. And we didn't have scales at my house. I was yeah. I tried um, weighed myself at my grandma's house. Okay. And I remember being like look at this change I can make mm. look at how co- like something can happen when I do when I put my mind to it mm-hmm. um and I still you know I use that and I still love that energy in my life now it's just in a really different way right yeah. like it what happens when you focus your intention and your attention at something what happens when you give something energy it's kind of amazing it just wasn't in a way that was hugely helpful and if I'd known what I was doing to my body mm. um like really known how it would affect my body for the rest of my life or and if I'd had a different understanding that my head and my body weren't separate yeah right my my life might have been really different yeah Mm. um and then I guess you became quite rebellious in in those mid-teen years right Mm. what was life like in that in that small window which is secondary school pre-university I guess 14 to 17 yeah right (laughs) 14 to 17 I was wild yeah Uh, I was shoplifting a lot Mm -hmm. I was using a lot of cannabis and uh that I had this whole dialogue with myself around like how cannabis was natural so Mm. it's like not a real drug right like God gave it to us and Mm. it's a medicine 
um, which led to like, well, mushrooms are the same because they're plant medicine. And yeah, when we can talk about the whole slippery slope of that. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, also, but but genuinely, like to start with, it was wanting to commune with nature more, and also wanting an escape and wanting to try things and yeah, all of that stuff. So my teens were a lot of that. Then also, my parents were separating. I'm the oldest. I felt a lot of responsibility. I've always been a kid who. Uh, took a lot of responsibility on that wasn't mine uh-huh. but wanted it right like it wasn't wasn't just put on me mm-hmm. uh i want i craved responsibility i liked being useful yeah. i liked being involved and i really disliked not knowing what was going on and i see that now in myself like one of the things that is a pattern of mine is i like to know what everyone's doing all of the time <laughs> and even though i think feel like I've let go of a lot of my kind of control freakery like I still know what everyone's doing all of the time because because it's dangerous if I don't Mm. you know like something bad could happen people could leave I might get hit there's all sorts of stuff that I think I talk about in more depth in the book that could happen and so again control stuff right like I want to know what's going on all of the time and then what happens when you are a control freak most of your life is it's exhausting Mm. And so then you just need an escape, a complete and utter cut off where you're not in control. Mm. And drugs gave me that. Drugs yeah. gave me a pl- like smoking was just the best thing in the world. <laughs> I loved <laughs> smoking cigarettes. I started very young and I really enjoyed having this thing again that was just mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that gave me some alone time. I used to hang out my window or climb on the roof and and smoke and. And I, I liked the identity that I was creating. I liked this kind of rebellious. I always had a lucky strike. I always had, um, I had lucky strikes, and I always had a lucky cigarette. Would turn one over in the pack. Who remembers doing that? Like it's, <laughs> I, you know, and I don't smoke now. And it's, and it's, I wouldn't ever. But it was yeah. such a huge part of my identity. Yeah, and you mentioned this is what I was saying earlier about you talking about the feeling of feeling like people are around, but having that. I guess like miniature isolation for re- to for the purpose of relaxing or recharging. Mm. You mentioned in the book when you were able to sit outside your bedroom window alone mm. with a cigarette, gazing over rooftop- rooftops at the horizon, looking at the sea. They were some of they were some of the times where you only ever felt good during that period. What would those moments give you in terms of stillness, and how do you how do you give yourself that now? so interesting so that's still such an important that feeling Mm -hmm. yeah that feeling of completely being in your body completely suspended in this moment Mm. Uh, which like as we're talking we can both feel it it's that thing and uh yoga now gives it to me meditation now gives it to me walking on my own gives it to me Mm. i have created tons of rituals in my life i have a morning practice which is not as um sporty or vigorous as most people's right yeah. like I it's a very chill very feminine um I light incense and I meditate and sometimes I stay in bed and like really access the dream world and like remember like that liminal place between awake and asleep which I really adore and that's what it was like for me in, in that time of not being so I would smoke cigarettes or sometimes I'd smoke really really weak spliffs because mm-hmm. I just wanted to access that space that liminal space in between like I'm responsible for everything and I know what's going on and I'm getting great grades and I'm managing life and I'm ticking all the boxes and I know how to play the game mm-hmm. 
and like just making it all the noise stop so interesting um <laughs> through all of i guess the rebellious st- i guess that rebellious phase mm. and through all of the madness as it were you still figured out a way to be incredibly focused and get yourself into the central i don't want to get this wrong yeah central school of speech and drama and it was a very there was very limited places on that course that you went for and was successful getting how did you find the way to guess i'm going to use perseverance and resilience in terms of the terms that came to my head of i guess skills that you had to draw upon to make that a reality how did you manage to do that through everything that was going on in your life at that time I have no idea other than there's some magic in me, right? Like I have, I have a huge imagination Mm -hmm. and I'm really driven. (laughs) Like I I have an ambition that was, Mm. that's very different from the rest of my family's. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. There's a phrase in the kind of personal development world, which I hate, which is like this, you know, you're meant for greater things. You always knew you were special kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. I was also really brought up that no, like everyone's special, but no one's special. And like, you know, I can't really describe it in any other way. It's I, and I cared a lot about the people around me as well. So like there were people that were like really into my education who could see my potential and I would let them down if I didn't finish it. Right. So Mm -hmm. a lot of my, my A-levels, for example, and, like, the grades that I got were because other people had shown up and, like, if they'd shown up and they'd, Mm. like, cared about me and they were willing to support me, then I needed to, yeah, like, take that care and that energy and honour it, I suppose. Mm. And also getting terrible GCSE results. I mean, they weren't terrible at the end of the day, but they were not what I was expecting I thought I'd do really well without doing any work and I didn't and I think so after that I don't know I think it's again it's an identity piece like I wanted to be someone who did really well Mm. but I also wanted a party and so I would I did live this bit of a kind of double life for a little while where I would like really party but then I'd come home and study or I'd really party and then I'd be like okay like what do I need to know for this exam or like Mm. write myself post-it notes or reminders or like I would always know like what is the focus and what has to happen and I think it's the thing around toleration as well like Mm. we all have a bottom line of like what we will tolerate and what we won't tolerate Mm. and so yeah I could party and I could play and I could go clubbing and I could do all of those things and climbing windows at you know four o'clock in the morning but ultimately I still had to get to school and yeah. I still had to get the grades and if that meant like copying someone or like uh cramming I would totally do that I would do whatever it took to get both yeah how was your early university experience at CSSD okay so awesome and also irritating Mm -hmm. so like I did not want to go to uni I went to uni because my dad wanted me to go to uni and because he was really clear that until I went like he had not finished his parental responsibility to me and Mm -hmm. like I needed that level of education and um so I didn't really want to be there Mm -hmm. and you know like you said I got into one of the hardest universities to get into that year there were they accepted four people into the course, into my course, the one I did. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I'd previously gone and tried to get into a foundation level in Brighton and in Eastbourne and they'd both said no and then this university that normally requires a foundation course mm. let me in without a foundation based on my portfolio with no they didn't care what I got in my levels they just they saw my portfolio and they wanted me wow. in which is really interesting because I still don't think of myself as an artist in any way. And my, my degree is in scenic art. And yeah. so I didn't do acting. Cause most people, when they think of Central School's Pitch and Drama, yeah. think of that acting stuff. Yeah. And I did no acting. I have no interest in being on stage. <laughs> um, so, But I, yeah, I loved doing all the behind the scenes stuff. Like really, mm. really loved it. And I loved the family of the workshop. So there was the scenic artists and then the scenic constructors. And we would build and paint and make the shows for that acting courses okay yeah yeah. so some of the wonderful actors that we all know now were in my year in the acting course right so we used to put plays on and and do really really amazing shows that were incredible so i loved it but it wasn't everybody's uni experience it wasn't like rock up for four lectures a week right we were Mm. in i was in the workshop from 8 30 in the morning till like five at night and um sometimes in there on a saturday and yeah i had a really good work ethic but Mm. i Still knew how to party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I went to four lectures in a week, that was like a studious week for me when I was at university. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was there six days a week. Like, I showed up, right? And I yeah, really yeah. learned something and I really took it seriously. And yeah, and I also still partied a lot. Yeah, and that, once again, that's another part of the book that, once again, stuck with me again. Um, that because of the the very typical, like, uni lifestyle, it wasn't like the, you were living a way that was uncommon in terms of what a uni experience can be but then you got really poorly Mm. and it I guess it was depending on how you perceive the world in terms of religious slash spiritual slash higher power beliefs it may have been the kind of I guess emergency stop sign of like no no no, we need to start calming down um and it was the ulcers right yeah can you speak to that and the adjustments you had to make because of the health the conditions you were having yeah yeah and it's, it's so interesting because i've got so many bits of my life now i'm like wow that happened yeah yeah so i was keeping up with the boys yeah and would go out and again i didn't have just one group of friends like mm-hmm. i'd inherited this thing from school where i had multiple groups of friends yeah. so if you had one group of friends right you might just all go out on a thursday night and that would be your big night of the week but if you've yeah. got three different groups of friends then you'll go out three different nights in a row yeah and there was this one particular week where we were going out for like and and it was a it wasn't just beers it was beers and like curry and then mm. by this point i graduated to cocaine yeah um and yeah Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night. And one night I came home and I was sick. Mm-hmm. Um, we all drink too much. We know what that mean, what that's like. Yeah, 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 and, I mean, we probably, not all, but like, you know, a lot of people have that experience. Yep. And I remember, um, I remember throwing up in the sink in the kitchen mm. and then going to bed. And then I woke up in the middle of the night and my stomach was in absolute agony. Mm-hmm. And I lived in a house share and uh, the toilet was downstairs. We had like a a bathroom and a toilet kind of separate mm-hmm. and I remember being the kind of ill where you're like it's too, I need my duvet yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I take my duvet to the bathroom yeah. and I was basically hugging porcelain with my duvet and three days went by and I don't remember very much I remember being we had a lie like a lino floor in yeah, the bathroom yeah, yeah, and I yeah. just remember because I was in my duvet being pulled out and yep. pushed back in again uh-huh. and so I don't like it's such a blur I mean 
it was such a blur then and yeah. now it's just a, a memory of a memory if you like um but I remember kind of being pulled in and out and I remember my housemate at the time saying we need to take you to the doctor this is not a hangover mm. this is something far more than a hangover um and I lived in in Lisson Grove near Marrowbone Station okay yeah, yeah, yeah. and um there's a Market Street near there, mm-hmm. um, which is very typical London, right? So you've yeah. got uh, so many different cultures all right, right up against each other and this kind of noisy market environment with stores. And halfway down this road, there's a doctor's surgery. Mm-hmm. There's the nearest surgery to us and it's a five minute, six minute walk. Yeah. My housemate was like, I will take you to the doctor because we were trying to ring and they wouldn't give us an appointment, typical mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. And um, I couldn't get dressed. So we went to the doctor's surgery in my pyjamas with my duvet right around me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to say I was embarrassed, but I don't remember any of it. Like yeah, I was right. just out of it. I was really, really out of it. Yeah. And I do remember lying on the doctor on the, on the bed in the doctor's surgery. And I remember him prodding my stomach and asking me if it hurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was so much pain. I was yeah. in so much pain. Um, and he diagnosed me with a stomach ulcer. Right. Mm. And gave me some really interesting pink liquid and tons of medication. Yeah, actually. yeah, And I think this is one of those turning points in my world where this duality that I was living mm. of like a good girl with holistic values and understands um, nutrition and like has been raised by great parents met this kind of wild child don't give a fuck i'm abusing my body gonna carry on eating whatever i want drinking whatever i want taking whatever i want because i'm young and i can and obviously i'm gonna live forever right and also you know i was born three and a half months premature i weighed three pounds and i've survived that so i'm like not either i'm and i used to use this depending (coughs) on the day like either i'm not even supposed to be here yeah or well like i survived that so i can survive anything right Mm. it's wonderful how we pick and choose (laughs) yeah so that so i was kind of in this place where it's like right i'm really sick Mm -hmm. and um i need to do some research around like how do you heal a stomach ulcer Mm -hmm. because this hurts i'm not gonna win and i'm not gonna start my career that i'm supposed to like start soon with a stomach ulcer Mm. And then you started practicing stuff like yoga, right? And started mm. eating better. Mm. Do you feel like having that such a sudden change, it kind of showed you to a life that maybe you'd want to live long term? I mean, you know the rest of the story. So yeah, the answer is yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> like you would have thought that. So, yeah. So for like six months, I had no coffee, no alcohol, no. I stopped smoking. Yeah. I gave up every like I mean this and it really was giving up at that point like now I would probably say quit or like made a shift or whatever but it was it was like I was holding my breath I wasn't this wasn't a a lifestyle change it may have looked like that and I may have even said that but it it wasn't permanent and I was just counting the other days that I could fuck my body over again yeah right I I just wanted it well enough to be able to drink and and smoke and yeah take cocaine yeah right um now that you get to look back mm. from your time at cssd mm. what do you think your biggest learning from that whole experience was that you kind of still apply now maybe to your life i guess it would be something about family and community and showing up for each other mm. um i really loved the family environment like i'm still i don't see very many of them but mm. i am incredibly fond of the people that i met there and the relationships that we made and the bonds that we formed and and i've 
I think I always had a work ethic, which is kind of hard to believe, but I have always, like I have, I kind of want to get across this duality because I've worked really hard my whole life and, and not just hard, like in a really engaged way, like I've given all of myself to every project I've ever done. And CSSD like really instilled that more in me and we were the only friendship so there was a house like everybody moved we didn't have halls so it was like you you made friends with randoms and and made houses like right in the beginning and so most people did that and then like didn't love that house share and went into another one or went into another one some people ended up in relationships and moved in with each other I was in a house share that was pretty much in the same house share for the whole time Ah. and we again we were fam like we were a bunch of misfits and um yeah, a lot of that is not my story to tell, but they were incredible humans and I learned a lot about like being there for each other and, and the the degree or the outcome of a situation isn't the only thing that you're learning ever. Mm. And I think that that's important. You know, I was getting a degree and I was learning how to be a good scenic artist, but I was also learning how to be an adult and how to take care of my friends and what it means to... I guess the beginning of what it means to be kick-ass and kind. Yeah, that's so interesting. And we're going to get back to the word adult very soon. Mm. Um, You then find yourself in the TV industry. Mm -hmm. How did you find that early on, being in the TV industry? Like, what were your impressions of it all? It was so shiny and exciting, and it's what I really wanted, right? So Mm. I did this theatre practice degree, but I really wanted to get into TV. Like, Mm. I could see that's where the money was. I was had this artistic side that we were talking Mm, about like was this creative thing but I had I mean now I'd call it a limiting belief but I definitely did not believe that one could make a good living from being an artist like Mm. I there had to be another way to commercially make sense of my skills and my gifts and the way that I could see that working um shiny proper reputable career in the tv industry like Mm. didn't who didn't want to be in tv in the early 2000s right right and I could see it as a way of like bridging having a proper job with also being my own boss like it it just ticked a lot of boxes for me Mm. yeah yeah it was around the 2002 point and you spoke about some stuff that was going on in your life in terms of relationships and traveling Mm. and you started to swear a lot more in the book did I yeah it was something that really stuck out to me wow I've always from getting to know your story from afar I've always loved to I guess how raw and open you are about storytelling in general. Mm. Um, was that a conscious decision? No, clearly no. not. <laughs> Is it just like a matter of the passion and reliving all of those th- like feelings? I guess so. So I haven't read my own book for a really long time. Sure, right? okay. Um, it's a bit like watching yourself on TV. Like, no, I understand why it. Why would you yeah. do that? Um, and I, I'm curious, was... Like, it's not something that's ever been pointed out to me before. And so it's really interesting. And I wonder whether it came across like I was angry. Like, is the use of swearing in it, did it make it seem like I was angry to you? Or was there another reason to be swearing? Um, It was about a relationship you'd had around that time. Mm. And something you had to go through, which was tough. Mm. But it just felt like it was, you know putting everything in caps lock more than anything else but i just found it so interesting that you hadn't really sworn 
a lot up to that point. Is this ski season time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm exactly. Like, which thing are you alluding to? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> there was a lot to be fair around then, right? Yeah. Like there was a lot of stuff that all happened back to back. Um, I feel like we should tell them what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll set it up somewhat, but it's. Um, no, I'm happy to share it. Yeah, I, like I'm now like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you'd done the ski season because there was. I mean, I hadn't. I, I was at the ski season, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um. Because you took a break, I guess you did the ski season like stuff, mm. but you were, I don't know if you were in a relationship or no, no, not in a relationship, no, but fell pregnant. Yeah. It was that time. Um, so I was on a ski season. Yeah. I mean, it's a horrific story, but it's very of our time now. And like, yeah. again, you know, this book came out bef- way before me too, way mm. before anyone was even talking about this kind of stuff. And again, you know, my parents were really scared when I shared this book and when I published the book, because it's not okay for you to talk about stuff like that. Mm. Um, so I was doing sea seasons um, after, after uni and did a little bit of work in the TV industry and then wanted to make sure that it was really for me. It's a tough industry and you've got to be Mm. all in. And so I did some temping and then the opportunity to do a ski season came up. And um, on that ski season, I very quickly became assistant manager of the hotel. Mm. And... I'd gone out as what we call a girly, so house like housekeeping, waitressing, you know that kind of thing. And, and very quickly, like I say, within about six weeks, I'd been promoted and been made assistant manager of, of this hotel. And there's like a training hotel which, at the beginning of season, everyone goes to, mm-hmm. and then you get sent out into your different hotels across the French Alps. This was, yeah, and. All of my the girls who are. You know, I was 22, so younger than me, like, mm. um, but old enough to be doing ski season, so kind of 18 to 22, yeah. were telling me about a guy who was working uh, for this company and can't have been that much older than us. Right, I have okay. no idea how old he was, but he must have been like 25, maybe. Sure. Okay. Okay. And um, that he had been uh, sleeping with all of them. And that he was kind of quite predatory, but also very charming. Mm. And they described it to me and I could see that they were being taken advantage of. And there was a weekend where I was given a weekend off like a prop uh, as a manager and I could go any to any hotel and like hang out for the weekend. And so I chose to go and teach him a lesson Mm. and go to that hotel. Yeah. And I failed miserably at teaching him a lesson because I ended up in his bed right. and pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. And firstly, I really appreciate you sharing that. That was the, I, I didn't want to tiptoe around it, but I didn't want to bring that up unless you no, were comfortable with it. Abs- I'm like, listen, I shared it in a book. I'm t- yeah. And I'm really happy to talk about it, right? Like yeah. it's, um, and I, it's really interesting to me that I did a lot of swearing around it because I still feel quite not angry about it for me. Mm. But I guess angry about it in the same way as all women everywhere sh- should feel angry, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, hmm, there's some weird stuff that goes on around uh, what we're allowed to share and what we're not allowed to mm. share and what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. Um, I did terminate that pregnancy and it's something that stayed with me for a really long time. Yeah. Nobody, under any circumstances, terminates pregnancy without really thinking about it. Yeah, it's such an emotionally charged and sensitive 
just pressure, like situation in general? It is, and I think that there are parts of America, particularly, that mm. seem to think that it's it's a decision that should be taken away from us, and that isn't um, that we don't have. I don't know the agency or the intelligence to make, and I. So one of the reasons I did talk about it is because it's it's not talked about enough. Yeah, yeah. Right, and a huge amount of women have, as particularly in their late teens and early twenties, felt really alone mm. in making that decision. And uh, what was really interesting about that experience is that I, I did not want to tell him. No, we weren't in a relationship. It was never supposed to happen. I was not even supposed to sleep with him. Mm. It was an accident. Yeah. I didn't like him. Right. Like I didn't even like yeah, him. Yeah. Right. And and he got me very, very drunk. Right. Um, and then took me home to put me to bed, just so we're clear. Yeah. Um but a friend of mine, when she found out after I'd left, so I was back at home in England, mm. um, she knew another side of him and really wanted him to know and really wanted him to hear and wanted him to be involved in the process and now with hindsight I'm like you know what again like we don't do um each other as kind of um sexes in this any favors by not talking about this stuff right because if we're not involving you then you can't have the emotional uh, involvement in it right and I was very much brought up to believe that I was on my own in that and that Mm. men wouldn't understand and that he'd just want me to get a termination anyway and that he would think I was a silly girl for even you know having feelings Mm. or whatever whether or not that's true I have no idea but that's definitely the place I felt I was in I felt very alone um anyway in life yeah but I did ring him and we did have that conversation and he did know. Yeah. But I didn't give him any choice. I did say, like, this is what is happening and I feel like you have a right to know, but I don't yeah. feel like you have a right to any more than that. Yeah. There's so many questions that come to my head, but there is one. Yeah. Um, do you think, looking back at that decision now, mm. there's also an element that is hard to talk about because... You would want kit. You want kids. You've spoken to me about that. Yeah. And does it feel harder in that sense as well? Absolutely. Yeah. It's really sad, you know. And even then, even then, I knew that it might be the only time that I was in that situation. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um. But I w- I've always been really clear that. I wanted to give a child to parents and regardless of whether or not I was in a loving relationship with my the person that I made that baby with, I wanted to be able to have a conversation with them. I wanted to be able to co-parent with them. I wanted to respect them. I wanted to be able to say great things about them. Mm-hmm. I wanted the child that I created to never ever feel that I was not happy with a part of their DNA. Mm. Mm. And so that decision was really easy for me. It was really clear for me, but that doesn't mean it wasn't emotional and it wasn't hard. And I still, you know, as you can hear the emotion in my voice, it's, there's absolutely no regret, but that doesn't mean that I can't feel sad. Yeah. I completely understand. Yeah. It just, it resonates that you are right. That topic does need to be more, I guess, accessible as a conversation. Mm. 
people. for both of us and yeah. you know if I was to do it again or if I was to be in that situation and be 22 now mm. in you know 2020 I'm I would involve him in the conversation. I, yeah. I hope and I would, I feel like, and I might be wrong, but I feel like our our 20-year-olds are privy to more information than and, and more being talked about um, than was then. Yeah, because I, um, when I was younger than 22, mm. um, I was a part of a pregnancy scare with a girl. Mm. Um, it, it wasn't, she wasn't pregnant but um that's the most terrified i've ever been yeah like without question there's nothing close um do you know something that i talk about a lot with people mm. uh, is that we don't a lot of women have that realization on their own yeah right? like they kind of they can see it coming a little bit because however disconnected you are from your body you know your body a, a little bit right so you get a sense that mm. i mean for me and i talk about it in the book i knew instantly yeah um but you have this kind of sense going on. And then we, if we tell the other person, we tell them with this like, it's like we arrive with this huge fucking parcel of knowledge. Yeah, and then yeah. we dump it on the other person and go like, and wait expectantly for a positive response. And so these days, we'll talk about more about adulting, yeah. but I am really clear on there being a difference between a reaction and a response and not judging mm. your partner or anybody when you give them heavy, difficult, uncomfortable, surprising news. Yeah. Never judge them on their reaction. You're allowed to judge them on their response, but give them time to respond. Yeah. And I wasn't in a place to be able to do that then. You know, if when I told him, I'd already... Uh, been the judge the jury and the executioner and I had no space for him mm. and that's not fair because it's not fair yeah I mean yeah it goes into a very involved conversation but um that I think should happen at some point but there's so much of your journey that isn't re revolved around that but it was just a topic that come to my head and, and stuck with you me. know it compounds because if we look at what i'm doing now and, mm -hmm. and the things that i talk about and how like it is we go into this much depth with mm -hmm. my clients i mean because your business and, and your life is affected by these little seeds mm -hmm. right and the decisions that you made and the what you made it mean about yourself and how you handled it and whether you'd wished you'd had more emotional intelligence or communication capacity or just the ability to create some space around it whether mm -hmm. you know or maybe you didn't have a friend maybe you don't have the kind of friendships where you can talk about this stuff mm -hmm. so many people i know don't have the kind of conversations where they can talk about don't have the friendships or any relationships where they can talk about everything freely mm -hmm. and that's something i have the honor of now because i've created it and that's why i have these kinds of conversations with people publicly yeah. because it's so important for us to, for everybody to know that it is available to you to be able to talk about everything. Yeah. Super interesting conversation, but yes, there's so much more about you that is okay, wildly carry on. interesting. So, um, <laughs> where, where, what was the next bit of my life that made you go, Oh, um, actually it's just, it's more general than the book itself. But do you remember the time where, being an employee in a mm. TV industry mm. and transitioning to self-employed became a reality or it was something that you started entertaining the idea of being a reality that you, you know, you're going to go from working in the TV industry, going into self-employed life. Um, and what were your early experiences of life coaching, the training? 
Okay. So in the film industry, I was still self-employed. Ah, okay. Sorry. But it was, I was freelance. And so yeah. there were other people also doing it. And mm-hmm. there was I, like other people around me where there was some structure. So I've been self-employed pretty much my whole life. Oh, okay. Sorry. I have, it's okay. I've worked in, I did temping and I've like done a bit of recruitment and like, bit, but mostly I was always freelance. Mm-hmm. And moving into what wasn't then life coaching was my girl friday was my first business where i was like right i'm going to set up a business i'm going to do this thing it's going to be completely separate um and so my yeah the first business i set up was my girl friday and that was um terrifying (laughs) um and the context around that was terrifying as well so um in, I'd been working in the film industry for some time. Life was good. Things were great. In 2007, there was a writer's strike in LA. Mm-hmm. And that by the 2009, that meant that there was no films to make. There had been no scripts, right? Because mm-hmm. if people are not making them once they've gone into production, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And so in the UK, that meant that there was very little work and that everyone who had like film level, bond level film, or bond film level experience was doing TV shows instead. Yeah which meant that my bread and butter wasn't available. And I'd been entertaining the idea of like, there must be more to life than TV. There must be more to life than this anyway. And that situation just kind of forced things, right? Mm. So I, I wanted to start this business. I thought it was a good idea. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, but then there was no work. Right. And there was no work. So I spent my, at that point, I was quite good like I had three months of money and I had my tax money put away, oh. but I had no work. Right. So I spent that. <laughs> and then there was still no work. <laughs> and I was starting this business. And it's a kind of interesting time because uh, I then got a £16,000 tax bill and my housemate got made redundant. Mm. And then my other housemate told me that she was being really badly bullied at work and wanted to leave and we had this four bedroom house in Herne Hill and I was paying for it on a credit card and thinking you know some work will come through right a big commercial will come through something will come through and also like I've just started this company which is like a personal assistant business like someone will hire us to do a big event or like you know I'll just sign one client and it'll be enough and so I was kind of refusing to sign on refusing to get help just burying my head but also like helping my friends out mm. yeah and so I'm in this situation where I've kind of paid rent and I've got this other stuff and I've spent all my money and then this £16,000 tax bill came through and it was the thing that pushed me over the edge and so very quickly we had to get out of the house my two housemates went back to live with uh, different their parents mm-hmm. um, I didn't have that option available to me um, so a prop truck came and drove all my stuff away and I had a car and I had a laptop and I just started this business and I was like, I, I have to make this work. So I lived, um, I, I, I hated it. I hated every part about having to, or feeling like I had to ask friends for help. Mm. Um, but I went and first of all, went and stayed with my friend Ellie and her boyfriend in, on a mattress in their living room, mm. um, yeah, and, and that's where my first business kind of started from, from like £25,000 worth of debt, homeless, living out of my car and sleeping on my friend's sofas. So interesting. Do you ever just reflect on that? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> on the days that I'm whinging that we're not making enough money in a multi six figure business, yeah, yeah. I win. Yeah, like, it is. I I do give myself a reality check and be like, oh yeah. It's not even just a reality check, but it's just this idea of how far you've came to get to where you are now. Life's definitely a lot more comfortable now. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Um, mm. You did some traveling, right? Yeah. So, found yourself in Bali at some point. Yeah. So we, after that bit with the business, mm. so started that business from, from the debt and living out in the car, lived mm. in a couple of other places, kind of over three years worked myself back into a place where the business was winning awards i had 17 freelancers working for me i was um we were highly in demand things were going really well i was living in a house chair again in brighton um and i'd created this business out of nothing and i'd followed like everything i thought you should do when you're building a business Mm. i had no idea what i was doing i was making it up as i went along and and one of the best things about that is that when you shoestring like when you when you pull together a business on a shoestring like you've got nothing to lose so you Mm. just go for it and you have to make money otherwise nothing gets paid so you you ask for the sale and you you send the email and you say the things and you learn how to make your own website and you stay up on twitter all night and have conversations because if you don't you're dead right? right so you just do it and most people in business are too comfortable like that's their problem like they, they aren't making any money and they don't grow because they don't need to they're not uncomfortable enough yeah. so I was really really uncomfortable and yeah I'd, we'd we'd created this successful on the outside business mm. and the truth of it was that on the inside I was absolutely miserable right. I wasn't paying myself all my clients wanted me I had no idea how codependent I really was and the kinds of relationships I was creating I had a f- fucking terrible boundaries and would just say yes to everything and answer my call at any my phone at any time of night and uh was working on multiple time zones so you know working la and um dubai and london so obviously yeah when did i sleep yeah (laughs) and found myself um using cocaine again right and abusing food again Mm -hmm. and yeah like felt like my life was out of control Mm. um and i felt like my insides and my outsides didn't match and I felt like I, it was what we call the three P's. It was personal, it was pervasive, and it was permanent. Right. And I decided I wanted to kill myself. I decided it was the only way out of this mess that I'd created. Mm-hmm. And like half of the part of that, like half of being, I guess, as intelligent as I am, is that I really knew it was my fault. Mm-hmm. Right, like I have the intelligence to get out of this. I have the education to get out of this. I have the family to get out of this. I, I am supported. I have had a wonderful upbringing. Like, if I can't make them, I you know now I would add in I'm white, I'm middle class. Like, I have had it fucking easy, and I can't make it work. So I need to just end this and get out because it's my fault, and it's everywhere, and it's not just business. It's in my relationships, and it's in everything. And it was full on. And again, it's something I like to do. I don't like to talk about it, but I I think it's important to talk about because uh, mental health is such a fragile thing and we've got such a limited perception and understanding of what's involved and how quickly things can spiral. Mm. Um, So I was in this place where I really wanted out um, and I was self-medicating. And um, without going into the whole story, I someone in my family helped me realize that I really needed to try something different for them. Mm -hmm. Even if I couldn't do it for myself to do it for them. So I went to the doctor 
and took uh, some antidepressants, which they were very happy to give me in replace of cocaine. Mm. Yes, I remember my doctor being like, I, and I, luckily I felt honest enough to be able to tell them. And she was like, you know what? I can really see why you were doing that. And I really don't want you to beat yourself up. I feel like I completely understand why you were doing it. And you were looking for something that was mm. going to do this. And these drugs are going to do that for you. They're going to give you that edge. They're going to make it feel like you can go into a room where other people are there without having a complete fucking panic attack. Yeah. So I started taking them and I, remember over the first week of taking antidepressants it felt like someone had opened a window and let in some light and some air and I could breathe and think again for the first time in months yeah and it was from that place that I decided I needed a break I decided that I'd been working um, I had had no gap year I'd had no break I hadn't had a proper like any time off in that whole mm. period and that I needed some time mm. so I sold my car and I bought a one-way ticket to Bali how was your experience in Bali? Bali saved my life. Yeah. Yeah. Because within six weeks of being in Bali, I had recreated my entire life and I had six entrepreneurs that I was working for, mm. making them lots of money, mm. assisting them in everything, helping them have their life that they want, feeling really resentful, feeling really busy. Mm. And I was in a cafe one day and, um, yeah, I just had this moment of it doesn't matter where I go in the world, I'm still going to be there. Mm. and so I made a decision I made a decision to figure out who the fuck I really am and learn to love it or change until I did mm. and that was 2012 yeah okay. and I came home and I trained as a life coach and actually just realized I'd had a quite an interesting life mm -hmm. I've actually been through some things and that I was um insightful and easy to talk to and good at asking questions and that I wanted to help people and that this was a way to do all of those things mm. um yeah so I came back and, and yeah in 2014 I graduated uh, as a small well as a personal performance and small business coach with coaching academy yeah and um how were your early days of life coaching in terms of post-graduation? I've always loved it. Okay. I've just always loved it. Mm. I found, found letting my clients lead and not giving them advice um, and like putting pauses in really hard, like sitting in silence with them, allowing them to think really tough to start with I always wanted to have the exact right question I wanted to be the best coach I could be I what I felt really responsible for my clients success or failure we live and learn um <laughs> none of those things are true anymore you know like coaching is my calling and it isn't just a job and it isn't just a fad it's like it's what I was put here to do yeah yeah I've had to learn the silence thing I actually said was the the first big learning point I had about podcasting was being able to listen, obviously, but not feeling pressure to just go, yeah, 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 and then ask the next question. Allowing someone to go through, I guess, the mini Rolodex in their head of how they want to answer a question. Um, and even though you might get one level of an answer, which might be great, and that you may think, okay, that's cool, I'll go on to the next one. Just shutting the fuck up for like five seconds, knowing it feels quite uncomfortable, and then being like, no, 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 this person might go a little deeper and you end up getting like a bit of gold and you're like, ah, mm. the benefit of shutting the fuck up and letting someone actually just go through their own head to see how far they want to go into something. 
Yeah, they're going to or the more skilled you are, are at silence, the more depth someone will reveal to you. 100%. Especially if you can hold it and be with them. Yeah, some people, I was on a coaching call the other day where I was being coached and I felt like she was using silence. <laughs> I was really just like, ask me another question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to tell you anymore. <laughs> it's true though, right? Because for some reason we're just universally like, uncomfortable in silence when we're with people i don't know what it is or that's what i found my experience to be that i mean you come from you know yoga and meditation and that's obviously and i've done a lot like to start with like i remember being about mm, 20 Mm -hmm. and um the idea that you could go on a silent retreat was discovered by me at some point um and a vipassana uh, retreat as well which is where like you're silent but you're also like not uh, moving right you just sit in meditation mm-hmm. right my idea of apps then absolute yeah. hell like, yeah why would you do that to yourself <laughs> now i love it yeah. i love being i guess we go full circle right to that experience of sitting on the rooftop all those years ago and the only way i could do it was smoking my lucky strike but now like being in silence with someone it's just the best thing in the world yeah, but that's unique. I think a lot of people struggle with it. Yeah, I'm surrounded by, by a lot of people who have done a lot of work. Yeah, and so yeah, I'm yeah. in a very privileged position where, you know, we have real life conversations. We talk about everything. Mm-hmm. And we can sit in silence with one another. Yeah. And that's my norm now. Yeah, so interesting. Mm. Um, can you tell me one thing from your time coaching the, when you started out coaching, yeah, you had no idea it would give you this, but now that you look back, it's something that you really value. When I started out coaching, I had no idea that it was going to bring me understanding about myself. <laughs> right. I had no idea that I would get clients who would teach me things that I was yet to discover about myself. The amount of times I get clients now where they'll come in with one thing and it's not the thing Mm -hmm. at all. And actually they've got this whole other story going on or this whole other thing that is really where the work is and where the wounds are and where we get to bring some light into the shadowy spaces and, and shift and change and alchemize what is going on for them. Um, And the amount of times they share a piece of their story that's the same as mine or very similar to mine or is still something that I'm like, oh, I find that uncomfortable, is um, wonderful. Yeah. And probably something that I wouldn't have admitted for ages because I was like, you know, we're brought up in this kind of patriarchy where we as coaches are leaders and therefore should have all the answers. Mm. And like, that's not what a coach is. That's a mentor. And like, I'm not, I mentor as well in, in part in some of the places and I'll share my experience when I can really candidly, but it's not my job to have your answers. And so, yeah, I think it's really cool when we meet, not, you know, there's the phrase, when you're ready, the, the teacher will appear. But as a teacher, when you're ready, the student will appear. And that's even cooler. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, how rewarding has your coaching work been? Incredibly. I, um, I love it. The coaching world frustrates me. Okay. Um, In because, what sense? 
become big business and not everyone is authentic or in integrity or sharing their actual results and being honest with you uh, yeah and that's that makes me sad it's one of the reasons why I'm such a big advocate of the coaching academy and of regulated um certified coaching I think it's really important yeah and I completely agree I got my I got my NLP with the, with the coaching academy and then you know how it is in terms of you can start and there's no time limit but PPD and coaching within education are I did like very I did two training two training days for PPD and the five-day course for coaching within education and I will pick that back up I'm certain of it but um yeah I really really rate the way that they go about the business I am don't tell very many people this I never finished my business diploma okay Yeah, yeah yeah because I was doing too well in business. <laughs> I just oh, didn't really? have the time, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like, I'm, so I've done all, I did all the days. I just didn't have my case studies in. And so I don't have the certificate. No. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I, yeah. I do tell people. Yeah. yeah. I'm not, I mean, I'm really aware there are some people listening to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. No one listens to it. It's fine. I'm joking. <laughs> do you, oh, yes. This bit, this is interesting for me in particular but um hopefully for other people uh do you find that the coaching work that you've done has really helped you transition with adult and with ebony as a podcast host the podcast only ever came out of people asking me for it okay so i did not make a podcast because i wanted to make a podcast i made a podcast because people kept saying one i really enjoy listening to your voice it's a weird thing for people to say i mean yeah a couple of people said it to me and i really don't understand it <laughs> it's funny isn't it <laughs> Um, I do get it now. Like I have got a voice that isn't annoying. Some mm. people just have annoying voices. And, right. Yeah. Um, there's something about the prosody and I, I understand that now. Like I, as a coach and as, as a master coach, I really get prosody and mm. it's not something I've had to work on. Whereas a lot of people really do. It's just something that's natural to me. Um, so I was asked a lot to do a podcast. Mm. And when I started adulting with Ebony, I promised I'd do 12 episodes and we'd see what happened. <laughs> and how many episodes are you on at the moment as of right now season one has 111 and we've actually recorded 14 of season two goals 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 <laughs> goals goals well and like you know we were talking about it before mm. like uh it is very systemized it is very organized and when i agreed to make that commitment i was really reluctant to have another thing in my life that was weekly yeah that i had to show up for mm. and um like, why did I set myself up with weekly? And that's because I wanted the consistency of that. Like, actually, as a listener and, and with the length of our podcast and the way it works, like, I wanted to deliver that content, but I really didn't want to um, do all the editing. Like, I just, there was lots of it I didn't want to do. Sure. And so I didn't. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's true for anything in life. And co- that's what, you know, to answer your question, that's what coaching has given me. It's like, you don't, you can do, it gets to be fun. It gets mm. to be easy. You can do anything you want to do and you're only limited by your own limitations. So, yeah my podcast is easy and fun for me and when we first started I did a lot of coaching episodes Mm. and I would love to do them and I used to live coach and uh those podcasts would go live no one wants to be coached by me live anymore because I make people cry and I go too deep oh okay yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. so uh, I would still love to do live coaching stuff Mm. um the difficulty is also finding something that can be coached in like half an hour um it's mostly really kind of quite beginning stuff that mm. people have got and um, whereas 
the coaching I'm doing now and the clients I'm working with is, is kind of quite complex and deep and it's really difficult to do in half an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Um, do you remember when the Misfits of Maven concept came about? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in as much as I remember like the whole thing came to me in a whole like download in the same way as the business before that my girl friday like it just appeared in my head and i wrote like woke up in the middle of the night and just wrote everything out and yeah. misfit to maven was a little bit like that mm-hmm. um i was in bali the second time um at a Mastin kip retreat um i'd never heard of the word maven mm-hmm. um but it came to me in a dream and it like the book title was misfit to maven and the the sub title of that book and the program at the time was from a to yeah. r yeah uh, and that is from my dad actually my dad like my dad was like well, what do you do with people and i was like i take them from feeling like ah yeah. to like ah oh. <laughs> so that's where the subtitle came from but the the main title itself misfit to maven yeah came in a dream and was really clearly given to me and um when i looked up the word maven and it was an old hebrew word meaning expert by experience it just it fit with my background with my culture with my lineage like all of those things and it, it just made absolute sense yeah plus yeah. i really like alliteration yeah it's weird right the yeah i just think the the birth of an idea mm. it comes in such different ways that i was curious personally more than anything else that was more of a selfish question but um when you released the first book how did you find the reaction of friends family people involved in the book um how did they react when that came out when i uh, finished writing the book mm-hmm. i sent a draft to my parents right who pretty much hadn't spoken since i was since they separated uh-huh I mean, they had, but not very much, mostly around my sister and childcare and stuff like that, but they didn't speak for fun. And they got in touch with each other to say, there is no way that Ebony is publishing this book ever under any circumstances. Yeah. Um, My dad's response. (laughs) I feel terrible for sharing this now. But his response was, I'm going to have to change my name and leave the country. Uh, You can't share this book. Yeah. So... Two things happened. One, I sat on the book and didn't publish it for six months because I was scared. And two, is that I edited it, I gave it another, like gave it, it was edited anyway at that point, but gave it like another edit and really tightened it up and made it a much better book. Oh. And I'm really, really grateful, as always, to my family for their caution, for their concern. Um, and ultimately, it was one of the biggest pieces of adulting that I have ever had to do because or chosen to do and what I mean by that and like you know I talk about adulting a lot part of that is like taking responsibility not living by other people's um, values or fears or limitations and making sure that you're being true to yourself Mm -hmm. so that you live no with no regret around what you could have done yeah and I reached a place where I felt like even if, um, and it genuinely felt like this at the time, even if my parents never talk to me again and don't love me anymore, I feel like it's important to share this book. Wow. And so I shared it. Yeah. So interesting. So interesting. Yeah. 
and they they both do still talk to me and they both do still love me but and it and it wasn't easy to negotiate that right and I remember Mm. having a conversation I went to a a hotel met with my dad and my stepmom and um talked about specifically what are you uncomfortable about Mm. how can I make this more comfortable for you like what yeah, what would do that? And again, you know, that's adulting. Like, yeah. Not just going, well, fuck you then, right? I, I, or like binning it because it was years of my life that I'd put, it like, took, took me 18 months to write that book and then at least another six months to edit it. And it was a, it was a big deal. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'd just specifically not gone to a publisher with it because I didn't want anyone else to edit it. I didn't want anybody else to say what I could say or couldn't say. It was yeah. really important that it was a self-published book. Um, that it wasn't at the time a lot of my friends were being published by Hay House and my ego and like a part of me really wanted a Hay House publishing deal and I still would really love a book deal but I also have very clear ideas about like I didn't want them to dumb down the story I didn't want them to take out uh, the abortion I did, like I wanted to have creative control over what was said and so yeah having those difficult conversations with with my parents made it a better book yeah can imagine um because we're talking about the book this is a question i really wanted to ask i guess going through such an emotional journey mm. and having to relive that again i guess it makes your entire life it condenses years mm. into that two-year period of writing i guess mm. because you said you had to relive a lot of it in you had to relive years in months does knowing those battles and them being far more fresh than they would be if you just lived your life and, you know, didn't write the book. Does facing those battles now make you having what I would, this is all my opinion, but a great book, mm. a great podcast, and I believe is a really successful business. Mm. Does it make it that much sweeter knowing that you've had to go what you've had to go through? I guess so. Yeah, I mean... I think if I hadn't been through therapy and I hadn't been doing the personal work before writing the book, mm. I also don't think that book would have been um, a good book. Okay. Right? It would have been me dumping the story rather than there's so much that went into that book mm. to take you on a journey. But then the second half of the book is a workbook, right? Yeah. So the second half, it's like I didn't want to, uh, I wanted to show, not tell. I wanted to teach with story rather than go and now do it like this. Mm. Like I wanted to be able to give you the context of why I'm asking you to do this expert, uh, exercise or what it will give you. And so there was a lot of work done before the book. Yeah. What the book gave me, that part of me, the ebony that exi- that you'll read about in the story, mm. stopped existing in 2015 when the book was published. Yeah. I I actually find it very difficult. It's interesting as we've, we've done this interview, but I find it very difficult to access her anymore because she just doesn't exist. I'm an entirely different person. There isn't a cell in my body that is her right. anymore. Mm. it was such a cathartic experience and there was something that happened in in releasing that story into the world where she just isn't me anymore she's a character in a book Mm. and i i know that's my lived experience and i can share it with other people and part of the reason for really wanting to get a second book out is to be able to go you know what um five years well six years have passed since the end of that book nearly seven and i yeah so much has changed since then yeah 
And that actually leads us to the penultimate, well, the last question before the final four. Yeah. Um, you're moving to Spain. Mm. The book, second mm. book. Um, this is a shameless plug everything moment. <laughs> what have you got going on project wise that you want to tell people? And how can people find you? So the main way to work with me mm-hmm. is in my signature program, which is M2M 365, which is Misfit to Maven 365. Mm-hmm. And the idea is one year, no fear. So whatever is going on in your world, um, particularly if you're entrepreneurial or want to start your own business or take your own business to the next level, mm-hmm. uh, M2M 365 is for you. But we don't just do business stuff. It's we do everything because you aren't um, you aren't you aren't divided into subcategories right like you are a human being and we want to create a lifestyle business that's going to work for you and fit around your life i'm really really all about creating a life and a business that feels as good on the inside as it perhaps looks on the outside and having heard my story you'll know why right it's um it's not enough to create a business that looks good Mm. um it has to feel good. So yeah, you can come work with me in M2M 365 and I have other like taster things that I put on. We've got two live events for the first time this year. Oh, that's exciting. It is, it is. Um, yeah, small, I think, mm-hmm. um, but live events and and really excited to put them together. I'm really excited to see what happens in my life once Spain um has happened and that you know i am really looking forward to doing some things for me like learning to speak spanish Uh, and people are like you're moving to spain you don't speak spanish to me yeah like don't let anything stop you from doing the things you want to do just do them so that's the best way to work with me um ebonyallard.com it's with an ie rather than a y uh, but you will find me anyway is where all the stuff i like to hang on uh, hang out on instagram okay at Ebony Allard. So it's actually the only platform that is 100% me. So if you um, message me, I will reply to mm-hmm. absolutely everything personally. Um, Luca will attest to that. Yeah, 100%. Um, you'll get little voice notes from me pro- probably. Like Which I, I've loved. <laughs> I really do interact with people. Like, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm a real person. And I think, uh, yeah, I, just, I talk about that a lot. But I think it's really important to mm. understand there's a person behind every single business. Um, yeah. And um, the podcast, like, come and play. Come and listen to Adulting with Ebony. Awesome. I will put everything in the show notes in terms of website, Instagram, everything lives there. So <gasps> There's one more thing. Yes, please. Okay, so I have a, a new planner, manual thing coming out uh, at the end of March. Yeah, that will be, that's going to be the time the time this is going to be released. It will be out already. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> okay, so it's called The Manual of Me. Oh, okay. And the idea is that we all have, like, how cool would it be if you arrived on Earth and they gave you a manual of you? Like, this is your manual, right? Ah. Like, you would love that, right? If it told you, oh, like, he gets cranky if he doesn't have a cup of tea in the afternoon or he definitely shouldn't have too much sugar or whatever it is, right? (laughs) Like, um, and we all have patterns or little things or ways that we like to be motivated, ways that we should be challenged and ways that we shouldn't be challenged, Mm -hmm. like, stuff like that. So the Manual of Me is a book. It's been a work in progress over the last five years with all of the clients that I've worked with where we have now got a real life manual where you can mark in those patterns and things that you know about yourself Um, and we've got everything from 
like exercise and food to mindset and behaviors to um sex like the whole lot is in there and the idea is that each one is a 10-year bible of you so that you can do get your first one at like 27 28 as you're about to go into your certain return and keep that and like put everything in it and then at 38 get a new one and keep them over your lifetime and then we've created them in a way that you can hand them to a lover or a partner or a best friend or you can hand them down to your kids afterwards so i'm really really excited about this and the, yeah they, the first run um are coming out at the end of march awesome ah that's so exciting that will be in that will be living here as well amazing so show note guys just please check out everything Thanks. okay ebony you've done amazing up till now okay and we're gonna go into the final four questions yeah um yeah they're questions i ask everyone and i think you're gonna really enjoy them because i guess they question they question what you think and feel on a deeper level um but yeah first one what's one thing in your life that you're proud of overall my business yeah creating one that works with my life that doesn't take over but gives me a sense of meaning and purpose yeah i love it second one what's your biggest personal struggle that not many people know about (laughs) everyone knows about all my struggles (laughs) (laughs) um i think i was gonna say the food thing because Mm. it's still something that i struggle with and actually that's not true or fair because i'm in a very very different place with it now Mm -hmm. i I realize the thing i don't want to tell people about is um i'm 39 and i'm still single okay like i it it, i don't like sharing that with people sure (laughs) and also you have to share it with people if you want to find a partner (laughs) which is really struggling like that's the struggle for me it's like i don't understand why yeah that's so interesting what are three personality traits slash characteristics that you would say you've built your life upon up to this point integrity Mm -hmm. kindness courage i love it they're great the final question, many years into the future, your time as Ebony Allard is coming to an end. The person closest to you can only describe you and your time here on earth in one sentence. What would you hope that would be? She walked her talk. I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> is it amazing? Because I'm the only person who's given you a sentence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the pace, I think, because it's such a, that question can bring up a lot of feelings i think for people it's not it's i think for some people it's a surprise right and mm. it's like it's the first time they thought about it it's yeah. um something i've thought about a lot yeah me too um, and as long as yeah i think it's the integrity thing right like yeah. she if people say she walked her talk i will be happy yeah awesome thank you so much ebony i really really appreciate it your story is absolutely phenomenal people please go buy the first book which is Misfit to Maven from R. And then hassle R. me about the second book. Yeah, right. <laughs> Come um, find me on Instagram. Yeah. Hassle me about the second book until it appears. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, once again, I just super appreciate your time. And as I said, in, in person, it's not in person, but in private, but um, opening your home to me, it really means a lot. And I do really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm super grateful you haven't whinged about the amount of boxes. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let's say goodbye to everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye.